Before I begin this morning, let me open in a word of prayer. God, I thank you for the privilege of sharing your word with your people today. I thank you for convicting me and revealing my own blind spots as I prepared this message. I ask you now, Lord, to be my mouth, speak your truth to your people, and draw them nearer to you, in Christ's name. Why do we follow Jesus? What compels the disciples in today's text to leave everything and follow him? What compels believers today to do the same? Is it the great health care plan? The worldly prestige and honor that comes with the title Christian? Do we follow Jesus because we were raised in a Christian home, so that's just what we do? Do we follow Jesus because of a political party that we identify with? Or is there something more? What brought us here today? It is my prayer that through the reading and parsing of his word today, that we would leave here with fresh eyes to see Jesus for who he is, and that we respond in a manner that reflects that. I want us to see that radical discipleship for Jesus requires a radical trust in Jesus. If you aren't already there, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, and we'll be in verses 1 through 11. Now look, before we get started, I want to make clear that this passage is a unique event recorded at a particular time for these particular disciples in which God chose this particular way to reveal himself. So, don't go out fishing this afternoon thinking that Jesus is going to reveal himself to you with a great afternoon of fishing. But if this does happen, call me. Okay, so let's dive into this text. Let's start out in verses 1 through 3. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So, Let's get our bearings and understand what's happening in this passage. Throughout the Gospels, we see numerous examples of Jesus' teaching. In chapter 4 alone of Luke's Gospel, we read of how Jesus taught in the synagogues of Galilee in verse 15. He's teaching in Nazareth in 16 through 21, and he's teaching in Capernaum starting in verse 31. And if we look at the beginning of this text, Luke tells us that this is exactly what Jesus is doing. In verse 1, we read that a large crowd has gathered around him and is pressing in to hear the word of God. When he gets into Peter's boat in verse 3, we read that he taught the people from the boat. Jesus is doing here what he said he came to do just a couple verses before this in Luke 4, 43 teaching, and Jesus is going to do just that. I want to show you three things that I see happening in this text that will hopefully grow us in our relationship with Jesus and call us into radical discipleship for his glory. I want to show you a radical request, a radical response, and a radical reason for that response. 
and in showing you these things, I pray it convinces you that radical discipleship for Jesus requires a radical trust in Jesus. Let's start with a radical request in verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. So what makes this request radical? First, fishing was done primarily at nighttime, mostly because of decreased visibility. The nets used here are quite visible, so fishing during the daylight hours would be less productive. Next, let's look at what Luke says they were doing in verse 2 where he writes, they were washing their nets. Then they let them dry so the nets would be ready for the next time out. Third, and most importantly in my opinion, is the fact that these are professional fishermen that Jesus is speaking to here. Put yourself in Peter's sandals for a moment. You just spent all night at work in a boat with a bunch of smelly guys laboring through your shift, coming in with nothing to show for your efforts, no haul to take to town, and no wages to collect. You spend another couple hours in the sun, bedding everything down, and you're just looking forward to getting home, to see your wife's pretty face, maybe grabbing a quick bite to eat, and then collapsing into your bed and putting this miserable night of work behind you. You think you're done, and this preacher man comes up to you and says, hey, let me use your boat as a pulpit, and after that, I'll let you take me fishing. Bruh. I can just imagine the look on Peter's face here when Jesus makes this request. To him, this might be like me, a software engineer by trade, telling Dave Rice how to mill lumber. Have you done this before, Don? No, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. You might expect that Dave would respond with a radical request of his own here. <laughs> Likewise, we might expect Peter to respond to Jesus' request in a certain way. But look at how he does respond in verse 5. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Peter responds in obedience to Jesus' illogical request even though, in this case, all of Peter's wisdom, based on his professional experience, is likely telling him the exact opposite, the student obeys the teacher, and the lesson culminates in the miraculous catch of fish in verse 6. Again, this is a teaching moment. What's happened up to this point is to serve a greater purpose. What Jesus is teaching these men is that discipleship begins with their total trust in the power of his word. Radical discipleship for Jesus requires a radical trust in Jesus. Friends, what do you trust in when it comes to your ministry? Or maybe a better way to put it, who do you trust in when it comes to the work of your ministry? Are you trusting in your own abilities, your own talents, your own attributes? Or are you trusting in the power of God and the authority of his word? It's so natural to place our trust in ourselves. It's almost as if we have this inherited inclination to defy God and instead rely on our own knowledge and our own abilities. 
I do it myself all the time. In fact, I did it with this sermon. I picked this passage thinking that it would be a breeze. In our Sunday night small group, the men and I have been reading Luke for the past few months. Before that, we read Acts, another book written by Luke. I shared a quiet time with this group on this very passage. I had done a ton of exegesis on it and even had a couple of words picked out that I would use to dazzle you by showing off my non-existent mad Greek skills. I had it nailed. This was going to be a breeze. So imagine my frustration as I sat in front of a screen with a flashing cursor just a few days before I was scheduled to deliver this message. Let me tell you about another time where I was relying on my own wisdom and God taught me otherwise. One morning, a few years back, I was meeting Pat for breakfast. I arrived a bit early to the restaurant. When I went to sit at our usual corner booth, the waitress informed me that the table was, was reserved that morning. So she seated me at another table. I wasn't comfortable as I was in the middle of the diner, next to the counter, surrounded by other people. If I were to be completely honest with you, I was afraid to be seen and heard doing this Christian stuff like praying and talking about Jesus. So I asked the waitress to move us to another booth in the opposite corner of the diner. When we, when we had finished eating breakfast and doing our Jesus stuff, the waitress approached our table and asked Pat and me if we would pray for her. Here I was, attempting to hide my nets, and in spite of my efforts to do so, God sent the fish right to us. Let's look at our text again. Let's start with Jesus' instruction in verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled the boats both the boats, so that they began to sink. Despite all conventional wisdom, Peter's trust in Jesus' word results in a catch too great for their worldly equipment to handle. And Peter's response to this is the linchpin of the text. Don't miss this. It's the truth that explains everything that follows the realization of who he stands before results in his next posture and subsequently the realization of who he kneels before. Peter's response here should sound familiar. We just heard Steve read of a similar response in the affirmation of faith when Isaiah the prophet came into the presence of God on his throne. We also see it on the part of Moses in Exodus 3.6, when he hid his face, afraid to look at God. It's the same response we see from John, the disciple who Jesus loved in Revelation 1.17, when upon seeing Jesus, fell at his feet as though dead. Peter recognizes that he is in 
the presence of God. And he responds with a recognition of his own sinful state in the presence of a perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God. And this is the radical reason for this response, as well as the disciples' response in verse 11 when they leave everything and follow him. Christian, do you know whose name you claim? How often do we stop and consider who Jesus is? When we pray, do we ever just pause and reflect on what we are actually doing? Does it occur to us that we are before the throne of God? The same God that Isaiah, Moses, and John fell before. The same God that Peter now kneels before. I wonder sometimes, do we realize this? We claim to believe this word, but do we live it? Do we radically trust in Jesus and his word? Along with Peter's response, I'd like to point out another clue that Luke gives us in this text that corroborates my claim of who Jesus is. Look at verse 8 again where Peter says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The word that Luke uses here for Lord is a word that conveys the idea of someone who is in authority. It can be used, for example, to refer to the master of the house. So the word alone doesn't necessarily convey that Jesus is God. But let's look a bit closer at the author, Luke's use of this word up to this point. You don't have to turn to all these, there are quite a few, but maybe jot a few of the references down, and later you can go back and read Luke 1 through 4 again and see for yourself. Starting in Luke 1:6, where in reference to John the Baptist's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, he writes, and they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Luke 1.9, where he tells us that Zechariah was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord. Luke 1.11, where an angel of the Lord appears. In chapter 1 alone, Luke uses this word 17 times. He goes on to use it 15 more times in chapters 2 through 4 for a total of 32 times up to this point when Peter says, when Peter says it, including once in Luke 1.32 when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says to her of the child in her womb, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Every time Luke uses this word up until now, he uses it to refer to Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. If you would, just turn back a couple pages, back to Luke 1. You can find that on page 855 of your pew Bible, that is. Let's read Luke's purpose statement for writing this book. Inasmuch as many have undertaken, 
to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, I ask you, is it a coincidence that Peter refers to Jesus here as Lord? Does it jive that Luke, in an effort to write an orderly account for his Gentile audience, would at this moment choose to break from his pattern and convey that Peter is calling Jesus sir? I think not. And I believe that we can have certainty that God has revealed himself to Peter and these fishermen here. And this sets the stage for everything that follows. Turn on back to Luke 5, and we'll pick it up in verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. The radical reason for this radical response to leave everything and follow him is the realization that this is not a request from man, but from God. And when we grasp that, is there really any other response when we think about it? These fishermen left everything to follow Jesus. Family, friends, livelihoods, reputations. I mean, think about it. Hey, did you hear about Peter? No, what happened? Oh, he took that Jesus guy out fishing, and they almost sank their boats with a catch. Really? So what, like he's quitting now and moving his family uptown? No, he just left everything, took off with Jesus, Andrew, James, and John. I think they're palling around with that John the Baptist guy eating bugs or something. Peter could have brought these fish to market and been known as a great fisherman. He chose instead to leave that catch behind in favor of a promise from his Lord to be something greater, a fisher of men. And in Luke's second book, the Acts of the Apostles, we actually see this promise fulfilled. In Acts 2, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, gives his first sermon. And we go on to read in verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. A couple verses later, in 47, we read that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice the passive language in 41, and then the direct reference as to who Luke says is doing the adding. It's the Lord. Now look. I am not trying to tell you to quit your job, sell your house, fill a mason jar with bugs, and become a street evangelist or something. <laughs> Present company excluded. <laughs> but what I am asking you is this. Do we trust in God's power, God's providence, and ultimately God's sovereignty in our lives? Do we trust God in our ministry? 
students, teens, young adults, do you trust in God when it comes to your future? Parents, do we trust God in our parenting? When our best efforts to raise our children don't seem to be working. When we do everything we're supposed to be doing, bringing them to church on Sunday morning, youth group Sunday night, one-on-one discipleship on Saturday, teen discipleship Wednesday, if and when all these efforts to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord fail, will we trust in God's sovereignty? God, we toiled for 17 years and nothing. And when we hear the enemy's familiar voice telling us that we don't measure up and that God has no use for a broken, hot mess like us, will we trust in God's promise that he will? Look at verse 10 again. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Jesus doesn't say you might be catching men. No, Jesus says you will. And this, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. Praise God. We serve a God who sent his son. While we were still sinners, according to Romans 5.8, Christ died for us. Apart from Christ, we are powerless. But praise God that in our weakness, we are made strong through Christ. Praise God that he assures us in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that his power is made perfect in our weakness. The Lord, who by his word calls a multitude of fish, also, by the authority of his word, commands dry bones to live. The Lord, whose power over the creation we see in this passage, exerts the same power over death and the grave. The Lord, Jesus, calls us into a radical relationship with him. And this, brothers and sisters, is the true radical request in this passage that this Jesus, who left his throne in heaven to come down and suffer the cross on our behalf, to bear our sin, our shame, that this Jesus calls us to be part of the building of his kingdom, to be heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, according to Paul in Romans 8:17. So the question for us is, how will we respond? Will we trust in the power of his word? Will we trust in his sovereignty? Will we respond in a manner that reflects that? Will we respond like my friend, a Division I soccer player who gave up that pursuit to instead pursue Jesus' call on his life? Will we respond like Adam and Nicole Harlow, who upon hearing the call, not only began to trust in him, but evaluating their life in light of Jesus' commands made the hard decision of obedience moving apart from each other until they were married. 
will we respond like Erin O'Brien, who grew up in the church and after graduating high school, sought to deepen her relationship with Christ, and as we heard her say in her testimony, now has full confidence in her Savior. These are examples of radical discipleship, and all of them began with a radical trust. Radical discipleship for Jesus requires a radical trust in Jesus. Non-Christian, you are obviously here today. Would you take a moment and consider that it might not be a coincidence? I invite you at this moment to consider that the God who spoke creation into existence, the God who called the multitude of fish in this text, and the God who calls a multitude of sinners to repentance and into his glory, that that God is calling you today to do the same. And after consideration of this, you aren't convinced? Okay, let me just make another request. In the words of prophet, the prophet Dory from Finding Nemo, just keep swimming. <laughs> Seriously, just keep searching for truth. Keep coming back. Would you respond like my friend Marty, who a few months ago, he took a radical step of faith when despite not believing what we believe, he kept coming with his mom, even joining a group of young men who meet on Sunday nights to talk about Jesus. Talk to the friend who brought you. Talk to one of the pastors, the elders, the saints. We are all eager to share the good news of Jesus with you. We desire to see God add to the number. We believe that this scripture is breathed out by God, and we believe that our God is mighty to save. We believe Jesus when he says in Luke 15, 7, that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. We believe Jesus in Luke 15, 10, when he says there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let me just close out today with a quote from David Platt, who writes, the question for us then is whether we trust in his power. And the problem for us is that in our culture, we are tempted at every turn to trust in our own power instead. So the challenge for us is to live in such a way that we are radically dependent on and desperate for the power that only God can provide. Radical discipleship for Jesus requires a radical trust in Jesus. As Steve and the worship team come up to lead us in our last song, I'd like to ask you to take a moment and reflect on some of the things we've talked about today. Ask God if there are any places in your life where you can trust him more and ask him to equip you with radical trust for radical discipleship.